short-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government, the government love, the government love, the government love, the government the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, Mike. Hey, Jay. How are you doing this morning? Well, after the the week I've had, I feel like I've uh, just been escorted out of the theater. Uh, but uh, hopefully things will, will turn around uh, this morning. <laughs> yeah, let's let's hope so. And, and certainly we have a, a lot of interesting stuff to talk about this morning. Before we do, actually, I want to let listeners know that we're planning our next listener choice, listener participation segment. That's for those pa- our Patreon supporters at the $10 and higher level. That's going to be this following week. So that would be the 23rd and doing scheduling in my head here. Never good. But we're we're not 100% sure about the time yet or whether it's going to be, whether I'll be joined by Jay or by May. We'll nail those details down the next few days. But uh, if you are at that $10 level, we'll be sending you a message with the time and the Zoom link at some point by midweek. And if you're not, well, we hope you consider that if you're interested in taking part in an episode. So but that is for next week. This week we have. If you if you if you give it the twenty dollar level, we'll let you know earlier. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we'll actually fill you in on the plans. Well, we're, we're 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 willing to we're willing to do a sliding scale sort of thing here. Absolutely. So. But, uh, yeah, so we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff today. The Hunter Biden indictment, the Houch impeachment inquiry, the auto workers strike. And depending on the time we have left, Mitt Romney's retirement and the fate of moderates in Congress, uh, the new covid boosters uh, approved and where you're being urged to get them anywhere except for Florida. Apparently, Uh, pandemic, unemployment insurance fraud. There's a lot of stuff we surely won't get to. All of it, but what we don't get to in the regular show, as always, Jay and I will tackle in the midweek show. And so, Jay, why don't we get going? All right. So to start with, late this week, special counsel David Weiss charged Hunter Biden with three felonies tied to his failure to disclose his illegal drug use when purchasing a handgun. The Colt Cobra that Biden purchased was discovered by Haley Biden, the widow of Hunter's brother, Beau, with whom Hunter was romantically involved at the time when she apparently threw it in the dumpster, uh, concerned that Hunter might be planning to kill himself with it. And no, I'm not making any of that up. This is a serious family drama here. Uh, Now, if he's convicted, Biden faces a maximum of 25 years in prison and $750,000 in fines, though as a nonviolent first-time offender, it's unlikely that he'd be facing anything close to that. Uh, And this, of course, follows the collapse of that plea agreement between Biden and the government under which Biden was to have pleaded guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges and then to not be prosecuted for the gun charges under a pretrial diversion agreement in which Biden would admit his drug use, agree not to attempt to buy a gun or not use drugs or alcohol for two years. And that was what many Republicans characterized as a sweetheart deal. It fell apart when the judge in the case raised some, I would say, significant concerns about its structure and enforceability. So, Jay, what do you think about these gun charges and uh, how do you see this playing out? I mean, uh, Hunter Biden and Donald Trump as cellmates somewhere. That would be an interesting thing. <laughs> that'd be a, that'd be like a good show. I think so, too. Yeah. Um, um, no, look, I I, I uh, here's the indictment uh, that, you know, people thought may have come for a long time ago. Um, I I think the the, the charges are pretty uh, cut and dried. Right. I mean, it's um, there's not a whole lot. For us to talk about here as to what happens next, um, I don't know. I mean, maybe he cuts another plea deal, a different plea deal, uh, just going to the gun charges. Um, maybe he he takes it to trial, uh, and uh, you know, there's a. I think the, I think the defense would be that this is a uh, you know partisan political witch hunt launched by Donald Trump and and so forth. And you you drive before the right jury, you could find a juror who would uh, who would say, no, I'm not going to convict on that. Um, uh, so I, I think those are probably the, the, the two big directions that goes. Um, the, the curious thing is, you know, what happened to the tax charges? 
um, which to me, uh, and I think to other, through other Republicans are, are, you know, what's much more interesting. Um, uh, just because there is the, the link, uh, between him and, uh, whoever the mysterious big guy might be. Um, so I, you know, I, 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 again, I'm, I'm not, there's not a whole lot to, to talk about on the, the gun charges themselves. Um, but, uh, it, it's also a matter of, I think Weiss, uh, you know, found himself in a corner of, of now he's got, um, uh, you know, a, a case that he, he can't, he couldn't just walk away from, uh, the plea deal having fallen apart. Uh, so he had to do what he had to do on this. So I want to come back to the, to the, uh, tax charges that weren't filed, but still could be and, and focus for a second here on those gun charges, because it, it, it seems to me, you're right, that clearly he, Biden lied on the on the form. And so he there when he got the gun, he possessed that gun illegally. Like like you said, this is very cut and dried here. Uh, But I I would imagine you would agree that this is the sort of thing that one wouldn't expect, given his nonviolent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't expect. No, not a a significant sentence, Um, given the circumstances surrounding it, the nonviolent part, the um, you know, I I. Yeah, I, I would not. I would not anticipate him. Uh, and I'm not. A, I'm not a criminal law expert by any means. Uh, and I haven't. You know, I can look up what the sentencing guidelines stuff is. But I would would not expect there to be any uh, a prison time um, accompanied with this. Or you know, it could be much easier. With, you know, some sort of diversion type program. So. And there is. I mean, I, I could if there's if there are others out there who know more about this. If there's any mandatory minimum or something like that. Uh, please correct me, but yeah, I, I I wouldn't see any prison time attaching to this. Yeah, I I think you're right on that, but it seems to me there is one argument that Biden's team could make. It might be one that at least some folks on the right would really like. Ooh, oh yeah, go ahead. I know what this is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, last month, the Fifth Circuit actually struck down a federal law that prohibited illegal drug users from possessing firearms. And that's one of the things that Biden's been indicted for. Uh, And in the decision, uh, the chief judge, Jerry Smith, wrote, our history and tradition may support some limits on an intoxicated person's right to carry a weapon, but it does not justify disarming a sober citizen based exclusively on his past drug usage, nor do more generalized traditions of disarming dangerous persons support this restriction on nonviolent drug users? And so this goes back to the Supreme Court's recent decision uh, in the New York case. And uh, I mean, I think there's not I mean, there's a reasonable constitutional argument to be made here. And it seems to me that if if Biden wanted to make that case and that that, of course, that would work in uh, the area of the Fifth Circuit, which Delaware isn't, but he would still be on the hook for lying on the form, but uh, it seems to me at least one of those one of those charges he was indicted on, you could argue is uh, if you're a Second Amendment sort of uh, history and tradition sort of person, could argue is uh, unconstitutional in the first place. And I, I, was that yeah, what you were it, thinking about? Yeah, that's what, and that's that's not a bad argument at all. Um, so there have been a couple other uh, of these cases, um, some involving domestic violence. Um, where courts have struck down uh, prohibitions on on weapons for domestic violence offenders um, on that same ground, sort of like, well, look, um, you know, when the the uh, Second Amendment was written and shortly thereafter, and and uh, um, domestic violence wasn't even a crime, right? So, uh, how could you say there was a history of tradition? Now, now the response is, and I think it's it's a good response as well. Domestic violence may not have been a a, a crime, but there was certainly the the principle in in the law. Uh, and other examples of keeping people who have a propensity for violence from owning firearms. Um, so I think you can you can make that that argument. And it comes down to when we talk about that history and tradition stuff that comes out of Bruin. Um, are we talking about a you know these general principles or, or actual look? Was there a statute? Was there not a statute? I, I mean, maybe it's, there's two levels of analysis, right? If it, it's easy, if you can say, well, yeah, there was a statute that prohibited this, or there was a statute that uh, specifically allowed it, or there's a case that uh, said something one way or the other. Um, but uh, otherwise, I, th- I think you you get into that um, look. What's what's the principle we're talking about yeah. here? Yeah, um, and, and and that's why I well for a number of reasons why. But but the, but the principle but the principle on this one, I do think there's there's some 
truth to it. I mean, I think uh, uh, most historians would agree that uh, uh, from about uh, 1800 or like, you know, at least the 1820s to 1850s, um, absolutely everyone in, Amer- everyone in America was drunk most all the time. Um, at least a and, little and also bit. also had access to firearms. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, and, and to me, that's, I think this illustrates why I'm skeptical or not a fan of the sort of history and tradition approach. I tend to favor much more of a balancing approach. And in this case, you know, obviously the balance, the, the question would be the that that right, that Second Amendment right, right which sort of the, the levels of scrutiny, right? Exactly. The, the, the Second Amendment is a fundamental right. Uh, and therefore, the government can still uh, uh, regulate fundamental rights, but they have to do so. Uh, they have to have a compelling interest and use the, the least restrictive means to do so. Exactly. I think that's a far better test, but uh, clearly the court disagrees with that. I feel like they sort of elevated the Second Amendment because, of course, the history and traditions test does make it more difficult to uh, put restrictions on than I think, generally speaking, than than a balancing approach would. But I would argue that a balancing approach is uh, in in many cases more more rational and more flexible. But that's an argument that I. Right. And and I think I think there's there's um, I was at a conference last week and there was some discussion on on that sort of expansion of where does where does Bruin go next? And I think I think there's there's stuff to be fleshed out there. Right. Um, Because I think the the history and tradition test worked um, specifically pretty well in Bruin. Right. Where you were talking about uh, what what amounted to an outright prohibition, Um, you know, but. But these other pieces that are are limited prohibitions, uh, you know, does does the, I mean, what I'm saying is, is Bruin was sort of an easy call. Um, these other ones are less so. So I think the court's going to have to deal with it, and they haven't yet, um, uh, you know, and and it may be some sort of hybrid test that we get to. Um, I don't know, but yeah, I've, uh, I mean, we've talked about this before, but I, I have issues, concerns about Bruin for for a number of reasons. Um, just on the, the workability of, of of the test. So, and moving to the the tax charges, while there haven't been charges filed, uh, certainly Weiss could still do that, and that may be in the works. And so, I'm I'm going to withhold judgment on that because it, under the plea deal, those were two misdemeanor charges, and I I think I'm going to, like I said, withhold judgment until we see actually if there are charges forthcoming, because there certainly could be, right? There, there certainly could be, although the the argument, and I think you'll see this on both cases, right? The argument is is uh, um, uh, Hunter's going to say, "Look, we had a deal that you weren't going to prosecute on this, um, regardless of whether the the judge approved an actual plea, right?" Um, uh, and and I think that's that's going to come up with with those. But to me, it's a little it, it's a little puzzling that they didn't add the tax stuff because. They already have it in the can, so to speak, right? It's not like there was any additional work or investigation. We, you know, we had all these charges ready to go before. Um, well, so, well, certainly the yeah, gun charge is an easier case because, I mean, it's about as straightforward as one can imagine. I mean, there's no question that he that he lied on that form, and so that's, like I said, that's about as straightforward as it gets. Whereas the tax the tax charges are maybe a, a little more. Uh, Disputable, I guess, reasonably disputable than that. Yeah. Well, I can, I can, I could even, you know, look, Mike, I'm, I'm, uh, I could even come up with arguments to say that it's not uh, undisputable that he, he lied or that he violated the statute. Um, um, but, sure, uh, but I understand what you're saying. But I, 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 don't, I don't think. Look, I don't think those are those would be great yeah, arguments. Sure. <laughs> but, but I, yeah, I think you could. Um, you know, is, is the statute so vague that you say, well, am, am I addicted? Well, I don't know. I'm not a, you know, addict. I'm just a, a cocaine enthusiast. Um, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? It's, it's you know, sure. there, are, there are levels yeah. of that kind yeah. of thing. So, yeah, no, that, 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 that's fair, certainly. Um, and of course, this is this is related to the larger story. It's not like House House Republicans or, or Republicans in general care much about Hunter Biden per se. It's about, as you call it, the big guy, right? And, and for folks who don't know, Jay's referring to some communications from Biden talking about uh, Hunter Biden talking about Hunter Biden on the yeah, laptop. 
the big guys cut and so forth. And clearly Biden is making allusions to his dad. And, and the question there being whether or not the big guy in question actually knew anything about this, approved of this, got any money from this, or if Hunter Biden was just throwing his dad's name around in uh, in an attempt to uh, make deals, essentially, right? Exactly. Okay. And exactly. that's one of the things, apparently. That- Although, again, as, as a lawyer, I would say, no, it's not clear that that's who the big guy is. Okay, sure. Well, absolutely. I would, I'm putting on my lawyer hat today, Mike, to defend Hunter, to defend Hunter Biden of all people. And, and defend um, Joe Biden in this case, right? Because the big right. guy, I'm, I mean, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm like John Adams defending the... Uh, there you go. The, the British, uh, the British at, at, at the Bunker Hill. Boston yep. Massacre. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have to Boston. Yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> that's good. So, but, but the point being right is that this is clearly focused on Joe Biden, not Hunter Biden. And that kind of leads us to what happened this week when uh, Kevin McCarthy, I'm almost feeling sorry for Kevin McCarthy. I can't believe it's ever come to that. But he he announced an impeachment inquiry into into President Biden. And this was made without a vote of the full House, despite the fact that only 11 days before McCarthy told Breitbart News that I quote, the American people deserve to be heard on this matter through their elected representatives. That's why if we move forward with an impeachment inquiry, it would occur through a vote on the floor of the People's House and not through a declaration by one person. (laughs) So uh, now uh, McCarthy's pretty rapid reversal here. Pretty clearly, it's an attempt to placate uh, extremists in the Freedom Caucus who have a threatened to force a vote, removing him from his position or multiple votes if he doesn't meet their demands. And that's both demands for a Biden impeachment and spending cuts that are significantly deeper than were agreed to in the debt ceiling deal in late May. But right now, at least to me, it looks like McCarthy isn't getting much, really, if anything, for selling out his principles such as they might yeah. be. I mean, you know, because to me, it, it's sort of, there's no, there's no, indication that I've seen that the sort of extremist flank of his caucus is at all interested in supporting a CR, continuing resolution to keep the government operating after September 30th. And also, I think if McCarthy tries to pull in any Democratic votes, he's almost certain. I mean, Matt Gates has been pretty clear. Hey, it's going to be we do the pledge. It's a motion to vacate. And we're just going to keep on doing that sort of thing. And that, of course, if you think back, that that was part of the deal to make him speaker on that 15th ballot where any member can make a motion to vacate. That's a privileged motion, which means you drop everything, do that first. And then if a majority agrees, McCarthy would be removed. The new speaker would have to be elected. So I, I, I bring that up. Jay. And, and I believe at the time I said that was a pretty bad deal. Well, yeah. And, and I think you were I think you were less like, ah, it's not going to it's never going to happen. Well, I mean, I don't think he's going to be removed because the, the votes aren't there. But. Let's uh, obviously these two things right, are related. But they can still they can still throw it up to yeah just gum up the works. Exactly, exactly. So uh, let's let's focus first on the impeachment inquiry and and McCarthy clear. I I, I don't think you would really even if you put on your lawyer. Well, take your lawyer hat off for a second. Just your regular person hat. I mean, it's pretty clear that McCarthy said one thing and did another. And he pretended to have these principles, or maybe he does have these principles, uh, that he just basically, I, I, don't, I don't feel that saying sold them out is, is, is unfair, but what do you think about that? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, and I, I'm, I'm a little disappointed. I mean, I, I guess, you know, a couple of things. One, um, if, if you're going to make the promise, uh, then you have to sort of be sure you have the votes to back it up. Um, and it, it could be, he didn't, he didn't count right. Uh, didn't have the votes to back it up. I find that, I find that a little, uh, hard to believe. Cause, cause again, my, my, my sense is, well, I'll take the vote anyway. Uh, if you lose, well, okay. Um, there's still other investigations that can proceed, right? I yeah. Mean, the, the, you got the uh, Comer the investigation the, still going yeah, on. Yeah, Comer investigation. There's all, all sorts of other avenues that you can keep investigating um, uh, the, the president and, and his potential connections to, you know, overseas money and all that. Um, I think, you know, the, the, you know, putting the impeachment label on it um, in some senses, in some sense raised the, the profile of those investigations. And I think this is, this is something that's a little weird when we talk about media bubbles. Um, Cause I, I, I read and I, I understood that, 
there were uh, you know a lot of folks on the left who were just sort of shocked, surprised. You know, where did this come from? Um, where on the right? Well, look, this is something we've been talking about for months. Um, and and I, I think it, it is just sort of the, the media bubbles that, that people inhabit. Um, but yes, you know, putting the impeachment label on it, all of a sudden uh, the media now was, is covering this more than uh, they apparently were before. Um, so, you know, it was it was maybe, to, you know, to my the, the impeachment with calling it an impeachment inquiry um, maybe isn't great. There's sort of the, um, you know, checkoff line. Um, the Russian playwright, not the Russian navigator. That if you if you show the show a gun in the first act, you better use it in the second. Um, uh, and and so I think once once you say impeachment, right, the launch sequence has started, and there's there's no there's no turning back. Um, and this is true with you know with when the Democrats did it um, uh, with Trump, and I think it's true now um, that once you say that word, then then it's you know you got to launch. Um, because I mean, uh, eventually, yeah, because I'm trying to think about this strategically where I, I don't really think the Freedom Caucus people give a damn about that. No, no, no. They, yeah, they, they want to launch. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's, not, it's not a. Yeah. Yeah. But 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 I mean, it, it seems to me that you're essentially putting the well, the small but critical number of. House Republican moderates in a horrible position, and I can understand why McCarthy. If you're if you're the if you're the leader, I mean he's he's the speaker, sure, but I mean he he focuses on you know helping his majority out. That it yeah. really so you're, puts, saying, you're saying yeah he he made the right political call by not calling the vote because it would have hurt uh, moderates potentially. Exactly, you don't want to you don't want to make ha- force your folks to make a vote that's going to hurt them essentially. So I I can understand doing that. But I think that in principle, he's right that for something as significant as this, it, it should be. I, I, I agree with the argument he made back when he was very vociferously protesting what Nancy Pelosi did. Right. And, and that first thing saying that, no, this is so serious that having one person announcement is I understand politically why he did. But of course, that just kind of moves the difficult vote on because I find it almost inconceivable to believe that once an impeachment inquiry has been launched, like you said, that that gun has been produced, now it will be used at some point. So there will be a vote on whether or not to uh, impeach Joe Biden. That, I think, is a near certainty. And talk about a, uh, that's a that's a much tougher vote than an impeachment inquiry thing. So I. I, I well, well, the, the, the gamble, the gamble is that. You know, through the inquiry, you'll find enough evidence that will make that vote sure. a lot easier. Okay, yeah, that, that's fair. Yeah, but you don't, you know, again, it's a gamble because you don't, you don't know that yet. Yeah, and and, and certainly there is. I'll say this: I don't live in a. I mean, I don't live in a a media bubble so much. I, you know, I read the Wall Street Journal and other, you know, right of. I read the New York Post. My God, pretty much every day. So, but uh, it seems to me that people on the right are fair in saying that Joe Biden has lied or at least changed his story about his knowledge of and communication with his son and people involved with his son's business dealings. I mean, that to me is is almost incontrovertible, uh, given just looking at the record. Now, whether it goes further than that, I don't know. But but I'll also say that I can understand the case for an impeachment inquiry in that 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 makes it almost certainly easier for the house to get access to documents that they wouldn't that would be more challenging to do cuz i put it this way and I, I i suppose i should have added that when i said i you know it raises the profiles of the media but yeah it also has that secondary benefit of the idea of this isn't just some some goofy committee chairman on a witch hunt this is a big serious national yeah yeah i, I think it is but but well, no, no, but but you know, you know, I'm I'm, I'm sure saying by labeling it, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. It's not it's not just the committee investigating this; it's the impeachment inquiry. Yeah. This right? is so. uh, l- let me be clear: this is not a big nothing burger. There is the, the Hunter Biden has done some sleazy, shady, unethical, almost certainly it seems to me illegal stuff. Uh, always the presumption of innocence, and clearly he has 
implicated his dad in that. And so the question is, I mean, he's not directly done that, but in his communications. And so I I feel smoke there. yeah, Yeah, exactly. I feel Congress would not be doing its job if it didn't investigate this. Now, that said, Comer's committee has not to this point issued, as far as I know, a single subpoena. They've they've made requests. And so I find it more than a little bit disingenuous saying, well, you know, they haven't been cooperating, so we need this impeachment inquiry. That's That doesn't pass the smell test. But that said, certainly now that it's at that point, it's probably going to be marginally easier for them to get uh, a court a uh, federal judge to go along and to force uh, compliance with subpoenas under an impeachment inquiry than under this committee activity, though, uh, as long as the committee shows a legitimate legislative purpose and they have uh, uh, ethics law, you know, regular ethics laws. Right. So, uh, again, I think it's important to to not make this a black or white thing. There's something here that absolutely is worth investigating. But this is also absolutely a political investigation. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and I mean, and that's and I think both are fine. Well, I mean, Watergate well, was a political investigation, but you know, so I mean, but it was it's it was it was something that needed investigated. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, so moving on to the kind of connection to the government shutdown aspect of it, because again, the uh, this year's uh, current year budget runs out at September thirtieth, and it's looking increasingly like they're will be uh, a shutdown. What do you think? Do you see that happen? How do you see this whole thing playing out? I know in the past you've said government shutdowns tend to hurt Republicans, but it seems like there is a group of Republicans who are held. I think, I think I've said government shutdowns always hurt Republicans. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so do you, do you think that happens again? Uh, I, I'm hopeful that there is not a shutdown. Um, uh, I think there's going to be some brinksmanship. Um, but I think, McCarthy will find a way to um, rein in enough uh, Freedom Caucus members to get this done. I think I think he he may well play the card of, of like, look, if if there's if there's a shutdown and we're blamed for it, and we will be because we always are. Um, you know, we could lose those couple seats, and there go your investigations, there go your impe- there goes your impeachment. Um, I suppose you would say, well, it wouldn't matter by then, but. Uh, Still, I think it's um, the, the 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 political uh, air goes out of the balloon at that point, right? Um, well, yes, it's, I, it's, I see your it's point. One thing to be on the ascendancy, right? Uh, the other to be scrambling and defending of of why you uh, allowed the government to shut down. So I'm I'm not I I'm hopeful that there's going to be sort of another CR uh, at some point because there usually is. Um, uh, so yeah, other other than that, I don't have predictions. The other the other thing that that I've I've you know read and heard in a lot of media outlets, and again, this isn't anything I've got any inside track on, but I think it's interesting. Um, to the extent that folks are saying, well, the the impeachment inquiry was meant to buy grace from the um, can you buy grace? I guess that's that's a it's a, a lot weird theological question. Maybe I misused that. Um, buy peace uh, with the Freedom Caucus. Um, it seems to be a non-starter. The idea being that the Freedom Caucus views the impeachment inquiry as something different than um, the spending issues on the government shutdown. So it's not as if uh, the Freedom Caucus is going to back down um, just because now there's an impeachment inquiry. Um, I mean, I, I suppose you're from McCarthy. You can say, well, hell, it doesn't hurt. Um, now they're only mad at me about one thing as opposed to two. But um yeah, I, it's 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 not a thing of of uh, there's no quid pro quo, pro quo there. I I think the problem is that McCarthy maybe is and and some old school Republicans uh, sort of labor under the misconception that some sort of transactional uh, you know bargaining sort of thing can happen with these folks. And maybe you're right with some of the Freedom Caucus members that's possible. But I think for a number of them, at least a small number of them, that that's they don't care about losing the majority that doesn't affect in fact you could argue that they they would feel right, right. it may not it, that may not in fact affect them personally yeah. exactly and given the fact that McCarthy can afford to lose so few votes 
that it, all it takes is all it takes is a handful of those folks, and, which is why I think that there there will almost certainly be a shutdown. I hope it won't be a long one. Uh, and certainly, I would hope it hurts Republicans, <laughs> you know. But uh, but but I mean, they've been setting this up for a while because if you take a look at what House appropriators have have done, they've basically been. The, the the bills that have moved forward and they haven't gotten to the floor yet, they, they they've been violating those that debt ceiling deal in in a bunch of ways. Not on the Senate side, the Senate appropriators have pretty much on, on both sides have kept to that deal. But the House has just been like, "Oh, the hell with this. Let's just do whatever we want and ignore, go lower than the, than these agreed upon levels." And they've been setting this up for a while, and so I think it is it, it is fairly inevitable. Well, there's there's a there's no I in team, Mike, uh, um, but there is an I in Republicans. Um, so I, I mean, I think that's you know, I mean, I, I, I would hope that the Freedom Caucus would sort of uh, try to be better team players and, and look at the bigger picture on this. Wow, um, did you did you just hear? I just. <laughs> Repeat that sentence. I, I, if I heard correctly, well, no, I, I hope that the yeah. Freedom Caucus will be team players. <laughs> yeah. No, I okay. mean, look, there's, there's, there's something. No, there's something to holding, you know, everybody's feet to the fire and all that sort of thing. And I, I'm all for that. But, um, uh, let's not, let's not blow up. Uh, um, you know, let's, let's not uh, self sabotage uh, for, for ideal. I mean. I, I think it's it's better to be, you know, and again, I could I could run through like a whole bunch of cliches here, right? About uh, half a loaf is better than nothing, and uh, don't let the uh, uh, perfect be the enemy of the good, and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but they're cliches to some extent because they're they're true. Well, they're um, only true if your goal is to get something done for the greater good. And I would suggest that uh, to uh, uh, Matt Gates and and which some is, other again, folks, me, yeah. That, yeah. You know, Team player, yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know, I, here, here's the thing. Here, I mean, here's the thing. Look, if if you lose the house, um, all the all the you know, well, you're not going to get any spending limits. Uh, you're not going to get any more investigations. You're not. It's. Um, but that's not the real question. The question is, I think, for a small but you know, a crucial number of folks, extremists, and on the right, is how does this affect my fundraising? How does this affect my electoral chances? Yeah. Because honestly, if, if, if this doesn't have it, if it hurts my fundraising, even if we retain the House, I would rather do what's better for my fundraising, even though we lose the House. And I think that's the calculation that, you know, maybe it's not a lot of them are making, but if it's a half dozen, a dozen of them, that's that's all you need that you can't afford to lose those Mr. McCarthy. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that is maybe a change in just. Because of the internet, I suppose, if you want to argue that, but but the way fundraising, you know, has worked, and, and it there there was a time where more of the funding, and it, it still happens, obviously, um, was directed out of caucus leadership, um, and and uh, you're right, if you have a lot of members who uh, have their own significant source of funding and could can tell leadership uh, go to hell, I don't need any money from you. Um, that changes the dynamic and and you could argue it changes the dynamic for good or for bad um but uh do do you think there'll be motions to vacate it seems like matt matt gates is just itching to do that again i i think uh yeah show the gun in the first act you better use it in the second and so then I'm wondering that puts Democrats in an interesting position, right? Because if Demo if Democrats want to, they could throw the House into complete turmoil by just saying, "Yeah, we we never voted for Kevin McCarthy in the first place," <laughs> and so yeah, we don't want him to be Speaker either. And so boom, there's your majority, and then all of a sudden the House just grinds to a complete halt. And uh, that I mean I, I don't think Democrats would enough. De Democrats would do that, but certainly that puts them in a in something of a maybe not a bargaining position. But this is why I started this off by saying right, that right. I almost feel Kevin, sorry. Kevin, we, we can we can save your bacon here. Yeah, yeah. I, I almost feel sorry for Kevin McCarthy, except he came into this with his eyes open. He knew what he was getting into. He saw what happened to the last couple of Republican speakers. Republicans have just been brutal to their speakers and it's been these 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 nuts on the far right who have just eviscerated the last couple of speakers i mean who would want this job who would want to try to i, I don't know it, it's a uh, wow 
which is why, you know, no, it's I, better I, if we have a I Democrat. Agree. That's 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 why. Yeah. To me, it's a source of frustration that um, the, the Republican urge to, to self-destruction. Yeah, absolutely. So you do know, you circular think circular firing squads and all that kind of stuff? And again, all the, the cliches you want to you want to throw out there, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory kind of thing. But yeah, well. I, I'm, I'm all, I'm all for that, you know. I know you are, yes, yeah. So do you think Kevin McCarthy keeps the speaker's gavel? I do. And so just. I think there's, I think there's going to be, yeah, there's going to be some uh, yelling and shouting and going up the works and uh, everything we just talked about. Um, but I think uh, he still has most of the votes um, in the, uh, in the, in the house and in the House Republican caucus. And, uh, uh, for Democrats, he's the you know like the the, the devil they know, um, and likely the lesser evil. Uh, so, and he's got Marjorie Taylor Greene on his side. So you know what else could you want? I'm moving on to something very different. On Friday, just yesterday, recording this Saturday morning, nearly thirteen thousand auto workers at three plants targeting each of the so-called. Big three automakers uh, went on strike. That's uh, the big three, by the way, if you don't know, Ford, GM, and Stellantis. You might not have heard of them, but they're the Dutch company. Chrysler. Yeah, Yeah. Ram, Jeep, Chrysler, that sort of thing. Now, the demands of the United Auto Workers include a 36% wage hike over four years and a 32-hour work week with all work over that paid at overtime wages and less use of temporary workers. Those are the key demands, at least. The automakers have offered somewhere between 175 and 20% raises over a four-and-a-half-year contract. The union has rejected this as insufficient after years of inflation, with consumer prices rising somewhere around 20% since the auto workers signed their last contract in 2019. And currently, full-time employees at the big three make somewhere between $18 to $32 an hour, depending on their level of seniority. Now, the union has argued that while worker wages haven't kept up with inflation, um, CEO compensation has shot way up. For instance, since the last labor contract uh, in 2019, GM CEO Mary Berra, her compensation up 34%, $29 million in 2022. Ford CEO Jim Farley saw a 21% gain, $21 million last year. And Stellantis is a little different because they didn't even exist in 2019, but their current CEO, uh, Carlos Tavares, he pulled in around $25 million dollars last year. And the union has also pointed out that since 2019, annual gross profits have risen 34% at Ford, 50% at GM, and Stellantis, again, 2021, they were founded. They increased their gross profits since then by, I believe, 19%. And that 36% I mentioned is actually down from the initial proposal of a 40% pay bump. Uh, and the union's also asking for the reestablishment of cost of living adjustments, retiree medical benefits. Both of those things were lost in the last round of bargaining in 2019. President Biden weighed in. He's sending White House economic advisor Gene Sperling and acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue to Detroit to help both sides try to come to an agreement, although it's pretty clear Biden is at least somewhat taken sides. He said that while no one wants to strike, he respects workers' collective bargaining rights, understands their frustration, and believes that automakers should ensure that their record profits mean record contracts for the UAW. So, Jay, uh, what are your thoughts on this strike and uh, UA and uh, auto workers' demands? Um, well, a couple things. Um, I, we're sort of back to the the theme this week is shooting yourself in the foot. Um, and, and I think the demands are over, over broad, but, uh, um, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. Uh, the, I mean, the other thing I, I, I would point out is that, uh, profits, uh, um, are, are, you know, year to year, um, contracts, uh, are forever, uh, or at least for a set term. Um, meaning, meaning, you know, you could say, listen, uh, uh, automakers were extremely profitable, and and they they were. You also talked about gross profits, which is is different, obviously, than than their net net profit. But um, you know, there was there was a huge burst in uh, in twenty 2020, twenty twenty one um, that I think the automakers are, are riding off of, and and we'll see if that you know I don't know that that you know there were 
sales and, and price increases uh, that were due to a bunch of weird factors, right? Pandemic and um, uh, stimulus payments and, and so forth, uh, and, and contracted supply and, and all these things. Um, I, I don't know whether that's going to be the case down the road. So, um, look, if, if they're going to, they're going to strike, they're going to, they're going to strike and we'll see where this ends up. But, uh, I, I think the, the big three are, are in, in, uh, not good shape in, in any, in any, uh, uh, meaningful sense of the word. So, um, what do you mean by that? I mean, I've heard heard the big, well, I mean, I think just they're, they're caught in a, a situation where their, their most profitable products that they sell are the ones that the government is trying to stop them from selling. Um, (laughs) you know, they, they want the move to electric, but they, you know, these companies lose money on electric. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's there, it's sort of this catch 22, right? Um, you, you're, you're, the electric push is going to, is going to keep coming. Um, uh, but they have to be able to find a way to remain profitable making and selling electric vehicles, which so far they haven't, they've just subsidized that with the sale of, of, uh, you know, your, your bigger trucks and so forth. Um, so that's, that's what I'm saying is, is an ongoing, ongoing problem. They've got to figure that out. And, and I think there's some, a lot of analysts have said, look, the, the real winner in this has been, uh, is, will be um, Tesla. Right, because they have figured out how to do this at a profit. Now, they're non-union, and that, that certainly, but it also helps that Tesla started out in electric, and the, the big three tend to be, uh, if, if you go back in history, the, it took them quite a long time to meet the challenge of, uh, of, of Asian car makers and German car makers uh, to a lesser extent in the 1970s and, and into the 80s. And that was a really rough transition period. And I think they definitely fear the same thing. And, and so, I mean, you have, some, you have some fair points, and I think we can't just discount their arguments that, hey, we're, we're worried about this electric future. And we haven't figured this out. And so while we have record profits now, how how is this? We need to invest billions of dollars in in this sort of in this technology just to keep pace because okay, Tesla only has a small market share now, but that's been growing quite a lot and they're making money off their electric vehicles. And so those are some if I'm if, if I'm Mary Barra or or Jim Farley, I look at that and that's a that's a serious competitive threat to me a few years down the road. Yeah, and, and you know the other the other piece that I think maybe the um, the union is is not looking at, but I would expect that the car makers would be is you know you know who doesn't ask for uh, uh, increases and doesn't go on strike are robots. Um, you know, I, I think, and we're 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 living in a world where, um, you know, increasing labor costs um, can much more easily um be be res- responded to by by automation um obviously there's already been a, a ton of automation uh in this industry uh, but and i, if, I should point you, out that just if, in, if you yeah. drive the uh, yeah, the the nature of electric vehicles, they tend to have fewer parts, require fewer workers to put together, and the unions are not. So in a way, you have you have the big three. Why is Joe Biden killing American like, jobs? You know, right? I mean, yeah, you have the big three not crazy about electric vehicles because, like you said, they make their money on the big trucks and SUVs and and so forth that are largely not electric. And then you have the workers who aren't crazy about them because they can be made with fewer workers. And, uh, but, but then again, I mean, why is Joe Biden, Joe Biden's not trying to kill American jobs. And certainly the labor market as a whole is extremely healthy, but uh, Joe Biden is concerned that we don't destroy the environment. And Hey, I think that's a reasonable concern. So let's, let's, this is just isn't being done because Joe Biden thinks, well, let's just screw up the, you know, screw up the economy. There are some legitimate climate concerns Sure. Um, but, but that said, you know, again, there's, there's, I, 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 I am, um, the, the more, the more I, I, I think of all these, these conversations of ours over the years, the more I, I come to the realization that my position, and I think that the free market Republican position uh, is and, and ought to be, um, look, uh, and it's, it's, 
the Milton, Milton Friedman, uh, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Um, there's trade-offs, right? And, and, you know, at some point you have to be realistic about those trade-offs. Uh, so if you, if you want to say, listen, we want electric vehicles because uh, we think that's going to be better for the environment. Um, this is going to be our policy going forward. Well, fair enough. Uh, but here's the trade-off. You're going to have less of these these uh, uh, union jobs, um, and I, I think that's you know. I think that's a reason. I think that's a fair trade-off. I, I would. I, I think it's right. it's all, almost always the, a mistake the, the in people, the long term. The people term. who will be out of work would disagree with you, but yeah. Well, yeah, and that that's why it's well, it's not obviously. I would argue not quite that straightforward because you don't just say, well, hit the road, Jack, and figure it out on your own. I think that's a big problem that that we fail to adequately appreciate and address kind of in that those waves of globalization that we've seen, uh, just assuming that, well, workers will figure out retraining. Well, you tell some tell some 50-year-old auto worker, hey, you know, go go figure it out. That's not very helpful at all. And we have, in, we have underinvested to an incredible shockingly unacceptable amount in in worker retraining and re-education and we need to do a lot more with that but we can't just say well we have to keep uh we have to forego efficiency gains so we can keep people employed that's incredibly short-sighted and i think that's that's the free market sort of approach but we can't just let these workers just say well figure it out on your own that's also a free market approach so i guess i half agree with you if that makes sense, because I mean, you would you, right. We agree on the point that that making automaking less efficient to provide for more jobs is a bad idea for the economy and for everyone in the long run. But also, it's not okay to just lay people off and let them figure it out on their own. Or maybe you think that's okay. Uh, I, I, well, no, I, to some extent. Here's here's the issue when you you get into the okay we'll train people to do something else well what's going to be the something else um and and how do you know that that's the right thing to train them for well you don't right this this comes back to sort of a market dynamism type type argument and to me the the bigger question would be look if if you just uh, had the government be less involved with industry in the first place um. You know these 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 trade-offs would sort themselves out uh, on on more of a micro level, um, but if we're going to have you know government policies uh, that are going to impact um, products that are made and and the jobs of the people who make them, um, there's going to be a trade-off. And then okay, well, what's the cost of that, and how do we uh, compensate for that? Well, if the compensation is another government policy that's going to require some other trade-off. Um, you know, again, you you start getting into a um, it's it's difficult to 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 plan all these things, right? Uh, and that's not I'm not even saying that's the government's fault. I'm saying that's just the nature of of the world we we live in. Um, there are there are plenty of of jobs um, that uh, uh, I mean, if, again, have become or will become obsolete based on on technology. Um, you know, the, the big, the big retraining push is always into healthcare. Uh, that's, uh, I, I had served on a, the Cuyahoga County Workforce Development Board, uh, years ago. And that was the, the sense of, of, well, what we need to do is to train these people to go into healthcare, which look is a, a huge growth industry. It's, it's huge here in Northeast Ohio, um, in Ohio in general. Um, but it's not necessarily limitless and the skills are not necessarily transferable. Um, it would, it was, it was easy to take, uh, you know, someone who worked on X type of machine in a factory and retrain them to go run Y type of machine in a factory. Yeah. There was a learning curve, but it's, it's, it's so the same four skill sets, right? Um, close enough. Sure. I understand what you're saying an entirely different industry. That's, that is not necessary. And some people are just not. Yeah. Suited um, for that say, in various so take ways. The auto, the auto worker, yeah. I mean, you can't just yeah. take an auto worker auto and say, worker "Hey, and you could be a home health aide." Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No. I, but but I, so I see I see your point. But then again, the question is, what happens to these people? Well, I that's you know I I I don't know, and no one knows. I mean, okay, um, 
Well, you and do the best you can. You try to make sure that opportunities are made available to them and understanding that you can't you can't put everyone in a in a similarly good job. That's just the nature of of economic transition in a in, in our economy. But but you can't just you can't just let them fend for themselves. And, and you know, you're right that you, it, it's oftentimes you're looking in the rearview mirror when making these decisions. So it's you want to give you want to give the displaced workers the maximum amount of flexibility to try to fit into as quickly as possible and also try to provide transitional funding while they're doing that. Yeah. No, and I and I agree with all that, right? I'm not saying you you get rid of safety net, get rid of unemployment, get rid of uh programs that that uh provide job training and, and allow people to transition to different industries. I'm just saying that's it's not it's not as if you can just flip another switch sure and say okay we're just going to take these people and move them over train them to do this and then everybody will be employed there's going to be there's going to be a cost there's going to be a human cost yeah absolutely and and, you know i gotta say i don't blame i don't think you would blame either the the uaw for taking the position they're taking i mean their job is to advocate for their members. It's not their job to worry about the American economy as a whole, just like it's not the job of the automakers to worry about that, right? That's Those are political well, I think, decisions. I think, it, I, th- I think you could say it is their job to worry about the American well, automaking economy. Well, sure. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, it's their their primary job is to advocate for their, for their members yeah. in the near yeah. term. And that's what they're doing, just like the automakers are doing the same thing. And so I think people are, are quick to point out, you know, the, the short-sightedness and greed of the automakers or the union members, depending on which side of it you're on. But, but I always say, well, these are economic actors rationally pursuing their self-interest. And if you want something that looks kind of takes a broader view, well, that's what, that's where the political system is supposed to sort of uh, you know, organize this and kind of set the terms of the debate and, and and that sort of thing. And so that's, I wouldn't expect the, the UAW to say, ah, you know, you, you're right. We're really concerned about the electric thing too. We get it. Well, we'll only, we'll, we'll take whatever they're giving us because we're worried about, you know, that's I'm not, not saying you take whatever you're they're giving us. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not suggesting negotiating strategy for, for either side. I, I'm just pointing out there's cost. Sure, absolutely. Uh, uh, to do this. Absolutely. And, but, and, but to uh, your, there's risk to do this. To your point that, you know, government just should try to stay out of this as much as possible. I think maybe in some libertarian dream world that's possible. But but remember, it was uh, in 20, 2008, 2010, the automakers were having huge problems. And what did government do? Oh yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, bail them and out. I didn't like and that. So, e- I didn't like that either, Mike. <laughs> but, but, but my point being is that they're, they they have <laughs> like, the economic. I can, I can remember. And, I say they have the economic and political power that they are going to be judged by policymakers to be too big to fail, and so they're always going to be bailed out. If you get an industry large enough and important enough, it protects itself by its very size. And so the idea that government isn't going to intervene, I think, is just just a non-starter. Mike, I remember when, uh, uh, again, as a, a young uh, high school student, being really upset with Ronald Reagan uh, for allowing the Chrysler bailout. Um, so, wow, uh, and that was and that was Reagan. <laughs> that was nineteen eighty five. No, look, I, I mean, so at least I can I can say I'm I'm being consistent. Uh, but, but the other, you know, look, and this, I, I will, I will throw out, uh, again, part of, we did our, we did our origin stories that, that one day. Um, but I grew up in, in Youngstown, Ohio, which is at one, one point, one of the steel making capitals of the world. And, uh, there, anymore. Is, uh, there, yeah, there's very little steel made there anymore. Uh, and it devastated the, the region and, uh, you know, steel, steel workers were, extremely well paid and and you could say justifiably so it's it's a horrible dangerous uh job that they they did um uh but the fact is that those those level of wages could not keep up with one automation and two foreign labor um uh and in that that period of time you know again the in the in the sort of that halcyon days right of the uh, uh world war ii yeah, through the, the 50s or the um, 70s yeah late 60s yeah. yeah 
where where in essence we didn't really have any serious global competitors um uh a lot of cases because of the war um uh, so much infrastructure had been destroyed but when they built back that infrastructure it was better than what it was uh it was more modern uh there were a lot of places then that could, could compete that didn't com- uh, that didn't compete with us before and uh, uh you know, are we we had trouble doing that, and that's again, I'm 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 um and, and the I'm reality, yeah, sort of a yeah. sort of a real realistic trade off uh, position. Um, you can also say, well, my God, the the air was so bad in Youngstown and in the sixties and the fifties. Uh, people will talk about just the, you know they, you wouldn't see the sun for weeks. Just this haze uh, from the, the steel plants. Um, uh, and again, I'm, I'm not old enough to remember that that would have been before my time. Um, but all I'm, all I'm saying is when the government gets involved and says, we're going to pursue X policy, um, that, that you can't, uh, simply wash your hands of the consequences. Sure. Absolutely. And, and- or, or, or maybe that's, maybe that's being a little harsh. Maybe, you know, listen, let's, let's be honest with, with what the trade-offs are going to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the reality of the situation is Tesla can make vehicles at a labor cost of somewhere between 45 and $50 an hour. The big three is somewhere between 64 to $67 an hour. And that's just not in a, in a increasingly EV world, that's going to be eventually unsustainable for the big three. And that's, that's a reality that has to be dealt with. And so I, I get that. Well, and, and one, and one, um, you know, one, uh, you would say, where would these, what would these worker, this place workers go? Well, maybe they go work for Tesla. Um, maybe they go work for Honda of America. Um, you know, those, those, those are some of the other. Well, yes, but no, because I, labor is not, not nearly as mobile as capital is. And so oftentimes yeah. there's, I mean, it's like, well, it's easy to say, well, just move yourself to North Carolina or Alabama and go work for another, you know, that's uh, uproot yourself and your community and all that, because you can go there and get a, the same job at uh, lower wages with fewer benefits in an entirely different community and part of the, part of the country. I mean, that's not, that's yeah, not a real to be a home health care aide. What's that? Yeah. Well, or I mean, train you to be a whole. So I, I'm saying I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that um, you know all these, these choices are, are 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 good or there's an ideal choice. I'm 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 saying um, you know this is this is what's here's here's you here's what we've got. Um, you know maybe it is you, you don't like anything we're serving, um, but but that's 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 what. That's what we've got, no, <laughs> if no. you understand me. So, well, and, what do you think uh, about, okay, well, the one aspect of this we haven't talked about yet, I mentioned it in, in the intro. This is really funny because I, when we when you floated this, I thought, geez, what am I going to have to say about this strike? But here we are. <laughs> oh, there you go. But the one aspect we haven't talked about is the CEO salaries. I mean, that compensation is like way up there, right? And so what's your, if you're, if you're the automaker's, talking to i mean what's your response to the workers about well hey how come it's okay for the ceo to get a 34 percent pay bump and you're you're blanching at us getting you know uh, what we're asking for i mean wh- how do you yeah. how, how do you justify mary barra getting 29 million dollars uh to uh, an assembly line worker well i don't i don't know that you you do other than you could say uh listen that's what the stockholders the shareholders think she's worth um, and, and maybe she isn't. I think that's you know. Look, that's that's a question for uh, for the shareholders of these companies. Uh, you know, are you paying your your CEOs too much? Uh, maybe. Um, but it, it to, to me, it's and then again, I maybe I just approach the world in a different way. I shouldn't say this because I, I know you you have the capability of approaching it in this way too. Um, but if you look at things from a, a market standpoint, um. It, participants get paid what the market uh, will bear, and there's nothing fair about that. There's nothing fair, fair or uh, good or bad. It's it's just sort of like it is, right? Um, well, yes and no. I, are, I see what are, you're saying, but let, let me let me just stop you because the CEO market is a weird market in that in that in in some ways it almost operates like a little cartel because right. you have. Well, I, so it's almost like professional sports. Well, yes and no, but it's the CEO market is weird because 
not only is it a very uh, a skill set that not necessarily a lot of people have, but the people who are on the compensation committees deciding that are oftentimes CEOs themselves, and compensation levels are often based are, are typically based on what other similar CEOs are getting. And so, when you're on one of these compensation committees making a decision about CEO salaries, you're often in an indirect way helping set your salary range. And so it's not really a competitive market in the same way that a lot of other markets are. And I think that needs to, a lot of people don't recognize the weird way in which CEO compensation is set. And so I would argue that that, I would agree that in a competitive marketplace, the market decides what you're worth, but this is a distorted marketplace with some perverse incentives. Um, I mean, I suppose, I suppose that's right. But again, the, the cure would be, uh, shareholders saying, Hey, we're paying our CEO. Now, again, the, the, you know, the, I think the, the argument would tend to be, um, again, it's, it's like a professional sports. Well, look, uh, we want the best quarterback in the league. We're going to pay X, X much more for him. Um, and I think there's, there's that mentality sometimes among your, your board members who, who do the actual, you know, running of the company. Um, but CEO salary to say, um, you know, listen, is it, is it fair that the, the, uh, quarterback field gets paid, uh, $20 million a year versus what the hot dog vendor, uh, gets paid? Um, well, no, it's, it's, maybe it's not fair. Um, but you look at the, the skill sets and, um, Sure. The, the, the argument is that, those that people. yeah, a lot of people can be a fantastic hot dog vendor, but only a few people can be a fantastic NFL quarterback. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's how markets work. No question. So do you think so, kind of pulling back and looking at this, do you think that uh, this is likely to be settled anytime soon? I mean, the auto workers have a pretty significant strike fund. And they can go from, I believe I've seen as much as 11, 12 weeks. What what do you think? Does this get the both sides kind of see the benefit of ironing this out uh, fairly soon? Or how do you, how do you. I, I think if they're, if they're smart, it will, it will settle fairly soon. Um, if both sides have a realistic understanding of, of their strengths and weaknesses. Um, I don't know enough to say if that's the case yet. Look, I don't. I don't necessarily have uh, all the the knowledge of strengths and weaknesses, obviously, that the negotiators have. Um, but to me, that's that's the the key to any negotiation, right? Is knowing the cards you're holding uh, and having a sense of what the cards the other sides are the sides holding. Um, and I look at this and say, wow, there's a lot of risk on both sides. Um, that it, it, to some extent uh, is it is it going to be worth? How much is it going to be worth fighting over um, uh, in, in terms of – and again, I, I think – Right, because I mean the longer – I should point out that while the UAW has a big strike fund, that the workers are getting $500 a week. And after a while, that starts to uh, pinch more than a little bit, especially for those who are used to a lot more than that. So it's uh, – uh, yeah. th there are incentives. And, 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 and management can sit and start doing the math as to, all right uh, – you know, what do we have to do in terms to uh, raise our prices or or uh, spend spend some of this money that we would have been spending on labor on uh, techno upgrades that are going to uh, reduce our need for labor in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. And then, I mean, and also factor in that is how much are we losing every week? In yeah, the course yeah. of this, and how much of that could we put for? How much could we put forth toward uh, more concessions and, and so forth? That reaches a point of diminishing returns, and so I, I think I hope you're right that within a few weeks this gets ironed out. Yeah, and I would say the last the last uh, bit uh, that I would throw out there is uh, the Biden administration. The last thing in the world it wants is labor unrest. Um, it's, it's all sort of well and good, um, to, to, you know, to, to go and say, oh, I'm, I support the, the rights of collective bargaining and I'm, I'm with the workers and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that scores some political points, uh, in the short term. Uh, but I think in, in the long term, um, particularly with, uh, you know, inflation, not necessarily beaten yet, 
the last thing the Biden administration wants is is uh, have these sorts of, of labor problems popping up. Uh, so, or at think, least I any kind of yeah weird. extensive long term thing that could end up having a significant economic impact. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that does it for us for this regular weekend news update show. And uh, though we, we there was a bunch of stuff we didn't get to, we will get to that in the midweek show. Like uh, again, Mitt Romney's announced retirement, those new COVID boosters, and Florida's response and pandemic unemployment insurance fraud. And if you are a supporter, you will get to hear all of that in the full midweek show. If you're not a supporter, we hope you'll consider becoming one because you'll get that full midweek show, not just a short preview that you get. You get ad-free versions of everything we put out. Other stuff as well, like the ability to be part of our supporter participation shows and a bunch of other stuff to check it all out. Patreon.com slash politics guys. You can support us on Venmo, Ven, Venmo, Venmo at Politics Guys, also through PayPal. We always have those links in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. But we know that not everyone is in financially in the position to support the podcast right now. Maybe you're a striking auto worker. I don't know. But if that is you, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you set up with full access to the complete midweek show every week. And regardless of whether you're a supporter or not, it really helps us out if you can spread the word. That means subscribing to us, rating and reviewing us on your podcast app you're using, and sharing episodes on social media. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, mailapoliticsguys.com works as well as the Discord channel for supporters. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you will find links to that in the show notes. And as always, before we go, a very special thanks to our fantastic executive producers. Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.